tonight continuing on with the seven factors of enlightenment. The development and cultivation of these seven factors of enlightenment is a way in which we can deepen our understanding and it's also a way in which we deepen our sense of refuge of being able to uh, find shelter from the storm, the storms of our minds, our bodies. And through the cultivation of these seven uh, factors of enlightenment, we come to a place of having true refuge in our lives. And we can get a sense of how they act as a refuge by just looking at times in our own meditation practice when we may have experienced these factors even for a brief moment coming into balance. You know, when mindfulness was strong, when effort was effortless, uh, when the quality of investigation, there was strong interest in our experience, and there was a joy arising out of this. And this was balanced by having strong concentration, by um, experiencing tranquility in the mind, and equanimity, where we weren't reacting. And you know, even brief moments where we experience these seven factors to be in balance, there's a deep ease and peace that is present. You know, we get that sense of refuge. And you know, this is the beginning of really learning about what is true refuge. Last week I um, ended up by doing a, a guided sitting on the four foundations of mindfulness, having spoken some about mindfulness. So tonight I just want to finish off speaking about these four foundations of mindfulness and then moving into the next factor, that of investigation. So the first of the four foundations of mindfulness, and I'm just using this word foundation, uh, I think it's a good word because it, it, you know, it points to the fact that this is something that we can rest our mindfulness against, a foundation. We can really build upon this aspect of experience by turning our attention to these four foundations. We can strengthen our mindfulness. So the first of the foundations being mindfulness of the body. It's a foundation uh, that is readily available to us. You know, we have so many experiences of this body. Um, in you know, just about any moment, we can tune into this body, experience the breath, experience you know, for walking, the body moving, um, laying in bed at night. You know, we can feel the body. And so many of us use it as our anchor the place that we do turn our attention to over and over again. We do this when we're using the breath as the anchor. Notice the experience of the breath, a way of practicing this first foundation of mindfulness. We, when we're eating, often focus on the sensations in the body. We let that be an anchor or we let movement be an anchor. 
And we really learn to rest the attention in the experience of this body. It's a helpful foundation because the experiences of this body tend to be coarser than those of the mind. And so it's easier to pick up these sensations and easier to stay present with them. Yet it can also be a difficult foundation to work with because often the experiences of this body are not so pleasant. This can be you know, very strong experiences of the body, such as we have in sickness, old age, and death. Or they can be just the moment-to-moment continuity of living in this body and how the body has all these needs. You know, that we can't just sit for hours on end, that at some point we have to get up, that it needs to be tended to, it needs to be cared for. And with that, it can be very tiring and at times even very painful. Actually, when we first begin our meditation practice, it's not uncommon that we hit upon tension in the body, patterns of holding that we weren't aware of. And so as we pay attention to this foundation of mindfulness, it can have the uh, experience of taking us deeper into dukkha. You know, for a new meditator, it's not so appealing. Um, And (laughs) I I think it also points to something else that we find a lot in our culture is that people feel disconnected from their bodies. You know, we can live in the whole world of the mind, and this body is just kind of this thing that we drag along. And you know, many people don't feel like they fully inhabit their body because it's just not so pleasant a lot of the times. And yet, you know, if we pay attention to this foundation of mindfulness, it can take us from the place of this body being a great burden, being something we tromp through life with, to finding freedom within this very experience of this body. It's also helpful because uh, it helps to break down the I, me, and mine of this body. You know, my body, my hand, uh, my head, my stomach, uh, my feet, my aches and pains. Whatever aspect it is that we're identifying with, uh, by bringing mindfulness to these experience, this experience, of this very body helps to break down this identification. It becomes much harder to identify with the components of this body. You know, this body which we so often think of as being so beautiful, um, helpful, and yet when we start to really pay attention and come close to the experience, this whole identification starts to crumble. There isn't so much joy in identifying with this body. We find that if we work closely 
with this foundation of mindfulness, this will become a great refuge for us as we age. It's not so easy to watch the body break down, to watch the changes that happen. You know, we can so take for granted our health when we're younger. And then there comes a point where we can't rely on it in that same way. And if we've been identified with the body through what the body can do, you know, and you know, for really active, being an active person, and relying on that for our sense of well-being, then as the body breaks down, there will be great suffering. But if we've been using this foundation, it will aid us. It will help us to be with this very natural process. It was uh, interesting to me, just the other day, I was describing to uh, a friend some of these shifts in aging. And she's a number of years younger than me. And I think to her, it sounded quite dramatic. Um, I won't share the finer details, but (laughs) anyhow, it was a certain sign of aging happening in this body. And so she, you know, she kind of says to me, wow, how does that feel? I mean, you know, how does it feel to watch the body breaking down in that way? And I hadn't even thought of it in those terms. You know, I had realized that it sometimes, you know, it was a a little uncomfortable, um, and sometimes it made me uncertain in different situations in life. But it just seemed to be what's happening. And so, you know, paying attention, it can be such a great gift as we traverse this journey of being a human being inhabiting a body and being at ease with this body. The second foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of Vedana, feeling tone of experience. And you know, this is, uh, it's said that all experience that we can know through the sense doors has feeling tone. And it happens at the moment of contact. So in a moment of seeing, there's the, the, um, there's the sight that is seen, there's the eye that's seen, and right in that moment of contact where the two meet, that's where the experience is known as either pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor pleasant, which is, you know, um, which we might call neutral. And so, this pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral is happening with each moment of experience, and how we experience it, whether any given experience is pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, will depend on past conditioning. It will depend on our perceptions and our memory. And it happens in life that, you know, what one person experiences as pleasant may be to another person unpleasant. For example, um, maybe we've been sitting in the meditation hall and it was dark. And then suddenly the light comes on to someone who is um, afraid of the dark, it could be that in that moment of the light coming on, it's experienced as pleasant. It could also be to somebody who has, you know, 
uh, spend a lot of time out in bright light and maybe damage their eyes, that when the bright light comes on, it's unpleasant. So, you know, it will depend on conditions from the past, how we experience it in the moment. And it will also vary for each person uh, at different times. What we experience as pleasant in one moment, in another moment, may be unpleasant. You know, if we've never, uh, we've gone through a chocolate drought, and then suddenly there's the finest Swiss chocolate there. And we have a moment where, you know, we're just tasting it, and it's so pleasant. You know, if after, you know, uh, 15, 20 pieces of that chocolate, you know, that same chocolate taste may suddenly be unpleasant. So it will change. It's not always the same. This is a very important foundation of mindfulness because what we find with the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral is when we're not aware of them, not paying close attention, this is where we move into liking, craving, disliking, aversion, or it commonly happens when we have neutral experiences that we don't connect, space out distance. And out of that, there's ignorance, not seeing clearly. If we live without paying attention to this foundation of mindfulness, it can happen that we get drawn to living a life of intensity. We crave the highs or the lows simply to have enough stimulus to keep us awake. And, you know, we're, it keeps us um, really in samsara. And we perpetuate the greed and the aversion and ignorance. One of the things about practice in the way that we teach it here is, you know, in just using the breath. The breath is a relatively neutral experience for most of us. And so this helps us to cultivate a wakeful attention when things are not so dynamic, not um, really filled with intensity. It becomes a great training ground to break this habit of seeking intensity. We find out of this that awareness becomes self-supporting rather than being dependent on conditions. I had one teacher who described mindfulness of the feeling tone as being the shortcut in meditation. You know, and I think I've practiced long enough to believe that there is no shortcuts. <laughs> but I think what he was pointing to was that if we can pay attention on this level, then it can keep us from getting pulled into emotional torrents in reactivity. 
You know, that if we can simply be with some unpleasant experience, it can keep us from spiraling into aversion, anger, hatred, rage, uh, and that whole sense of separation. It can keep us from, you know, having a moment of pleasant experience and then reveling, delighting, grasping, gripping onto with great tenacity. And instead, it's being able to open simply in that moment to pleasant experience, just as it is. The third foundation, mindfulness of the mind or consciousness. We find in Buddhist teachings the mind uh, described as having two different components, that of consciousness and that of um, the factors uh, arising with consciousness that can color consciousness such as factors of anger, of greed, of delusion, that these will color our experience. Consciousness knows experience, and these other factors color the experience. And you know, often it's difficult to separate these two, that they come very close together. We can think of this foundation of mindfulness as being the atmosphere of the mind. And it too is very important to learn to be mindful of because with these different colorations of consciousness, these different atmospheres that actually color our vision, if we don't pay attention, then they become uh, the way we view life and they color our perceptions and we don't see things clearly. You know, such as when we're angry and everything becomes colored by this anger if it's not recognized. The great aspect of this foundation is that we really come to know the mind. And often, the mind seems so complex, so mystifying, and this is a way of directly looking into what we call mind, coming to just experience this knowing quality, to see that knowing keeps arising over and over again, to see all of these different colorations that come through the mind seeing that these colorations arise, are known, uh, pass away. Uh, You know, watching. Now, sometimes mind states can seem very solid in one sense, that they last a long time. And yet, you know, if we pay attention, we begin to see them when they arise and then when they pass away again. And, you know, even though they can seem quite solid, sometimes they're also very subtle in that. You know, I've noticed in my own practice, there can be, you know, maybe a really quiet joy that's happening. And that might last for quite a while. 
And then it could be in another moment, I just recognize, whoop, it's gone, it's disappeared. We begin to see these mind states just as they are. So in a moment of lust, we know it simply as lust. It doesn't mean we are a lustful person that um, you know, is going to be caught in this forever. It's just a passing mind state. <clears throat> in coming to know this mind, we learn to be honest with it. We learn to just simply recognize these different colorations of mind and to not take them so personally. We stop then trying to conceal our experience. And this helps us to have a wholehearted engagement with life. The last foundation is mindfulness of dhammas. And this often gets translated as mind objects, which can be a bit confusing because it can actually uh, relate to physical experiences as well as mental experiences. Bhikkhu Bodhi translates it as phenomena. And this is phenomena classified by way of the categories of the Dhamma, the Buddha's teachings of actuality. When we find the Buddha talking about this foundation of mindfulness, this is where he goes into a number of his lists. These lists, the five hindrances, the seven factors of enlightenment, the six sense doors, both internally and externally, and the five aggregates of clinging, and the four noble truths. What happens when we work with this foundation of mindfulness is we come to be able to know all of these objects of minds. We begin to recognize these objects in the minds, and we come to know them as dhammas. We come to know the natural laws that govern phenomena. This is quite powerful. To I was th- I was reflecting on this um, earlier this evening, and just uh, I was a person who did not um, fit so well in the uh, common educational system because there was this desire to know the natural laws of life, to really look deeply into the truth of the way things were. And, you know, I didn't find, didn't feel like what I was being taught was going to help me with that. And so really wanted to experientially know the laws that govern us, to be able to um, experience these laws within myself. And this is what this foundation does. And so I, just a simple example of this, you know, that we find that, that desire is in the third foundation of mindfulness. And when it's in the third foundation, we learn to know desire when it's present in the mind. But by observing this desire, 
over and over again, we also come to know it. We come to know what are the causes and conditions that give rise to desire, which is when we don't pay close attention. And then we begin to really recognize when desire is present, and we also come to know when it is not present. We come to uh, know the conditions that will give rise to it arising in the future, and then we come to know what will help us to abandon it, which is you know, paying close attention to our experience. What we find with this last foundation of mindfulness, you know, if we uh, just hear it as in the way of the lists, um, uh, uh, it can be helpful if we really take those lists and look at what, in specific, the Buddha said about each of these. Um, but what happens in practice that if we really work with paying close attention to our experience, we will come to understand this fourth foundation of mindfulness. It's, you know, it is, the culmination of it is the understanding of the Four Noble Truths. And so it's where, you know, it's, it's kind of like really seeing for ourselves and understanding for ourselves the laws that govern phenomena. Each of these four foundations is said to break down a different form of illusion. Mindfulness of the body breaks down the illusion of beauty. Now, as we do the practice of the 32 parts of the body, or just bringing the attention right into the body, it isn't so beautiful. Now, our our um, scene becomes much deeper than the superficial level of this body as being beautiful. Mindful, f- mindfulness of feelings breaks down the illusion that things are pleasant. The illusion that things are pleasant. When we're riding on the surface, we can think that many things are pleasant. That if we bring closer examination to, we'll really see that it's not so pleasant. Mindfulness of mind breaks down the illusion of permanence or continuity. This happens very dramatically when we can begin to see the arising and passing away of consciousness, something that has this illusion of permanence. And mindfulness of dhammas or mental objects breaks down the illusion of self. Um, It's said that people with different predispositions can work with the foundation that breaks down uh, a strong tendency in their minds. So, if we have been really attracted to this body, taking great delight in this body, that we may find it very helpful to work with this foundation as a way of breaking down the illusion of beauty. If we tend to gloss over things in life and see many things as being very pleasant, 
we can work with the mindfulness of feeling tone. If we are um, not attuned so deeply to impermanence, paying attention to the mind and all of its changes, and if we have the illusion of self, which I probably many of us do, <laughs> fourth foundation, we can pay attention to you know, all of the different ways that uh, the hindrances arise in our experience. We can pay attention to what helps uh, the mind to clarify, such as the arising of the seven factors of enlightenment. We can pay close attention to the experiences through the sense doors. Um, all of the workings of mind and body. So from listing that, you can probably see that it's worthwhile to pay attention to all of these foundations of mindfulness. Because I'm sure at times we run into all of these illusions. So these four foundations cover all aspects of our experience which in itself is wonderful, because this means that no matter what is happening, we can be mindful of it. We can pay attention at any time in life, at any point in life. We just have to connect with our experience, and we will be working with one of these foundations. And just in closing about mindfulness, I want to stress the simplicity of it. You know, especially when I speak about something like mindfulness of dhammas, or you know, just all of the words that get used to describe mindfulness. To remember that it is very simple. You know, just in sitting, in being here, in the moment of hearing, just the hearing, in the moment of touching, just the touching. Whatever our experience, just this. And this phrase, just this, is actually a phrase that I commonly use when I find myself either you know, thinking about my experience, um, holding awakening in some elaborate process of you know, many different practices that need to be done. But I'd just like to come back to the simplicity of this moment. And so you know, at those times, calling up this phrase for whatever arises, it's just this, being with just this. And that holds you know, a simplicity in what we be with, um, in directing us to the experience in that moment, and it also helps us to be at ease with the experience in that moment. Because in that way, we're only opening to the experience in this one moment, and doesn't mean that we, you know, if it's painful, that we have to open to it for the rest of our lives, or that we have to uh, open to all of the suffering in the world. Can we open to just this experience? The simplicity of mindfulness 
really helps to guide us towards the cultivation of the other six factors of enlightenment. It does so by bringing awareness to these factors when they are present. Now, often we can find that uh, the factors could be present, but we're not mindful and we're not recognizing them. So mindfulness will just help us to recognize when they are present. And in doing so, it helps them to strengthen. Mindfulness really acts as a protector or guardian in the cultivation of all of the other factors and helps us to see when they need balancing. So now moving on to investigation. With mindfulness, we learn to connect with our experience, which helps us to see clearly out of this. Um, you know, we connect with the experience, and then comes in the quality of investigation, which helps to illuminate what is there. Um, investigation is this illuminating quality that helps us to be able to discern objects of body and mind. We are able to know the characteristics of our experience, both the specific characteristics, to you know, come to know um, with mindfulness of the body, uh, different elements that are present. Uh, you know, we might be experiencing heat, pressure, tightness. We, we begin to connect with the very specific qualities of that experience. And we also connect with the universal characteristics where we see with each of these experiences that they are subject to these three universal characteristics of impermanence, the unsatisfactory nature of experience due to impermanence, and the insubstantial nature of experience. And this all becomes illuminated through this quality of investigation. So when we speak of investigation as one of the seven factors of enlightenment, it is different than we often think of uh, investigation in our lives, where there's an analytical investigation, uh, where we're thinking about um, the type of investigation that we're relating to here is really an intuitive uh, form of wisdom. Uh, there's, I was reflecting over the last few days about investigation, and there was a really helpful element in the environment for part of this time, and it was all of the electrical storms that we have. Um, you know, in my own experience of sitting and having this quality of investigation, you know, it can at times really be as if there is a bolt of lightning and something is seen clearly. And, you know, so sitting in the midst of this storm, particularly that one in the middle of the night, not so long ago, and, you know, the whole sky was lit up. And when it was lit up, you know, you could see what you can't always see in the dark. You know, and so it, it illuminated everything. And this is what investigation does. What was really interesting to me on that night was there was so much light that it was like daylight, and then there would come a moment when 
all of the light would disappear. And it was like back to front, you know, the, that, you know, often my world is very dark, I don't see clearly, and then there's these flashes of light. Where there it was just sitting in this illuminated world, and then there would be a moment of darkness. Um, and, you know, I just saw this as this, this uh, lightning as being very closely tied into how investigation works. And the effect of it is very similar, too. Because what happens when we're sitting in darkness, the world is dark, we can be complacent, not seeing clearly, there might be boredom. And then when there is this quality of investigation, things become vibrantly alive, electric. And you know, that's the same way, you know, some of those cracks of uh, thunder and lightning in the night, I don't know how you felt, but it was like every cell was alive with them. And that's what happens with investigation. It brings in this clarity, this vibrancy to what is already there. So mindfulness connects us with the experience, and then this quality of investigation, it illuminates it. I think it's important to kind of remember this piece about how illuminating it is. Because often in our practice, we will have times where um, we are feeling complacent. We aren't connecting with our experience. And then it's to just see if you can bring forth, call forth this quality of investigation to really just take an interest in our experience. This quality of investigation needs to be unburdened. It needs to be light, simply illuminating. Because if in our investigation we are trying to investigate in a way to get specific results, or investigating uh, but really thinking we know what's going on, we aren't open to that deep exploration. We aren't letting ourselves move into unchartered territory. And so, you know, with investigation, there needs to be a quality of courageousness where we can let go of any expectation. And we just have this willingness to probe, to feel, to touch, you know, and just really delving into our experience, to know it without any idea of what it's going to be. We have to be able to sit with don't know mind, to have this level of exploration. A question that has worked for me often in calling forth investigation is to just simply ask, what is this? No, so it could be that we feel confused by our experience. And then it's just sort of like, what is this? And then as we ask the question, it's not like trying to figure it out, but it's more a deep listening, really listening to all of the qualities that are present, all of uh, the characteristics that are there, that are are particular to this experience. 
So we find as we bring our attention to my, uh, our <laughs> bring mindfulness to our experience, that investigation will come forth when we really allow the mind to connect deeply, to penetrate experience. Um, then this illuminating quality will naturally come forth. <clears throat> and there's said to be seven ways besides this that we can support the arising of investigation. The first of this, uh, first one being asking of questions about Dhamma, about practice. And what this asking of questions is not so that it stimulates our thinking about, but so that it stimulates us to really want to come to know for ourselves. You know that um, it takes us from the place of having uh, you know, a blind faith into really verifying our faith, where we really want to directly and immediately know things for ourselves. And you know, with this, I want to just speak about one aspect of intellectual investigation that can help to inform us in Dhamma investigation. That if we're pursuing an intellectual investigation, you know, there might be some reading something and we come across some word that we don't understand. And so then we go to a dictionary and we um, read up about that word. And then maybe that prompts something else, some other form of inquiry in our minds. And you know, maybe we remember a book that spoke about this particular thing that we don't quite have an understanding of. And so we go and we pull out that book. And you know, we can just be pulled from thing to thing to thing out of this form of investigation. Well, the Dhamma investigation that we do is, you know, like hearing something, hearing something about Dhamma that propels us to look at some aspect of our experience. And then we go to that aspect of our experience, and then something else is seen, or something is seen in a new way. And, you know, it opens up our experience. It takes us deeper into our experience. The second way of supporting um, or the arising of investigation is cleanliness, both externally and internally. You know, uh, just keeping the body clean, well-groomed, um, a, a basic way of helping this quality of investigation, and also taking care in our environments. Uh, that it's amazing the impact that clutter, dust, dirt can have on the mind. Actually, just recently I was speaking to a friend who was just speaking this from her own experience and saying that, um, you know, just seeing that everything around her seemed to have an effect. And so if we can keep our environment clean and tidy, both internally and externally, this can help to bring about clarity, where this quality of investigation can be strong. It's also said to support the arising of investigation through the balancing of the controlling faculties. 
the controlling faculties being faith, wisdom, mindfulness, energy, and concentration. And so we look to a balancing of faith with wisdom. So looking to that our faith isn't just a blind faith, but is actually balanced through or verified through our own experience. Or if wisdom gets too strong, we can find that we get rather jaded, um, that uh, life becomes an intellectual exercise. Um, We can also find that the mind becomes cunning and manipulative. So looking to have a balance between faith and wisdom. Also having a balance between effort and concentration. Effort, too much effort, will bring up agitation, restlessness. We find we cannot focus. Too much concentration will make us lazy and drowsy. And so uh, needing to balance these two factors. And all of these are most easily balanced through mindfulness, the recognition of these factors. Again, you know, things in our life, events, everything that happens to us has an impact. If we go and sit amongst fools or those who are um, not looking deeply into life, it doesn't support our own inquiry our own investigation. It becomes very difficult. And it may be that uh, their habituated ways of reacting just feed ourselves in staying complacent in living in this habitual mode. If we go and sit amongst those who are wise, who have some understanding, this again can motivate us, inspire us um, to look deeply within ourselves. Another uh, way of supporting investigation is through reflection on the profound truth. And this is reflecting on the nature of physical and mental phenomena as aggregates, elements, faculties. We uh, can reflect, and many people have described how at times you know, being caught up in some story or some event that's happening, and then turning to the experience that's happening in the moment and really just seeing them as different formations, formations arising and passing away again. And this helps to break down. It helps us to disidentify the last <coughs> excuse me <coughs> the last factor that supports the arising of investigation is total commitment total commitment can you be totally committed? And, you know, when you hear that, to see if you can just be totally committed in this moment. Totally committed to being present, awake, alive, 
alert in this moment. There's a natural sharpening that happens. And investigation is said to be the factor of wisdom. You know, it really provides that sharpness, that clarity. And, you know, it's uh, <clears throat> this quality of investigation that arouses insight, where we see clearly. And this same quality of investigation is what takes us right through to Nibbana, to the complete release of the heart-mind. There's a line that is common amongst many of the poems of enlightenment from disciples in the time of the Buddha. And it's, the great dark was torn apart. And this is the power of investigation, that it takes us right through to Nibbana, the great dark being torn apart. Just saying that, I'm reminded of that experience in the night you know, when everything was illuminated. So let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.